Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Tuesday, April 14. Thank you for joining us on IAB There, our daily live stream, in which we connect the digital advertising ecosystem. On today's show, the power of two, the future of connected TV and the evolution of the supply side platform. Our guests today are Michael Barrett, CEO of the Rubicon Project, which just merged with Teleria, and our own CEO, Randall Rothenberg of the IAB. As we bring them onto the stream, let me talk with you about how you can pose questions if you have any. We ask you to do that on Twitter. Please post any questions you have for our guests on Twitter using the hashtag IABthere, one word, all caps. Once again, the hashtag is IABthere, one word, all caps. Allow me to welcome Randall and Michael. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on IAB There, and over to you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Thanks, Michael, it is great to have you here. I'm going to jump right in, but I need to give a little bit of an introduction of you. You're one of the first people that I met uh, when I was coming into the business. You've had one of the most distinguished careers. Uh, I think I think you were at Fox Interactive when I first met you uh, as CRO. You then became CEO of AdMeld, where you uh, really were one of the pioneers of what we're today calling the programmatic business. Um, you jumped into the mobile uh, world pretty early as CEO of Millennial Media. You were CRO of Yahoo. Uh, you've been around the block as a senior sales executive and as a as a leader in our an inventor of our industry. So, um, so with that kind of setting you up, I need to ask you. Uh, you've just done this extraordinarily high-profile uh, merger between uh, Rubicon uh, Project and Teleria, and I was really kind of intrigued. I, I have it here: the, the Adweek, uh, you know, headline saying that you're becoming the largest independent SSP. But really, I'm wondering, you know, how the programmatic industry, from your view, at the, from the origins has really evolved because I'm wondering whether these terms SSP or DSP even make, a, uh, make sense anymore as capabilities have merged in the center. How would you position yourself in the evolution of the, uh, of the programmatic world? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and uh, thank you for the uh, lovely introduction. Um, I think it probably shows that uh, my inability to hold a job more than anything, but uh, the, uh, yeah, so, you know, so in 2008, when uh, Ben and Brian started AdMeld and I joined them not too soon, uh, not too soon after the launch, I, um, you know, the, it, it truly was a uh, piece of software that was organizing ad networks for remnant inventory. And now fast forward and we're talking about um, the holy grail of advertising, you know, long form advertising, uh, highly produced television ads in private marketplaces between some of the best content producers in the world and the leading marketers. So I don't think you can go any further on the spectrum of uh, clickable banner ads to uh, 30 second TV spots running in some of the best programming in the world. Uh, and along that evolution, the SSP, or you know, some folks call it an exchange, or whatever the case might be, um, it, it's been there for the publisher uh, in different iterations. And so, to me, I think that we've seen this maturation of programmatic, 
uh, where, you know, when we originally started the business, the direct sellers were, you know, it's just remnant inventory. No way are you ever going to uh, help the publisher monetize all of its uh, inventory to where, you know, 90% of the revenue is generated by programmatic for most of our publishers. Uh, and you're starting to see that in the, in the video as, as I alluded to before. So, you know, I think, I think in some ways the, the, the core goal of helping publishers uh, generate uh, ad revenue hasn't changed. How we do it and the scope of which we do it has changed. And lastly, I think when we first started out, it was a very adversarial relationship with the buy side. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you remember the early conferences, but it was almost impossible to get a buy side uh, person to go to a sell side conference or yep. vice versa. It, because truly, the game was to trick the other guy. So the DSP's job was to, to try to uh, take advantage of the publisher with uh, information they had. And the SSP's job was to level the playing field for the publisher and trick the DSP. And now when we run our conferences they're, they're even balanced uh, and everyone it has a vested interest in working with each other there's far more transparency there's far more uh, you know collegiality and uh, the top agencies who maybe even five years ago weren't even that conversant with how the dollar went through the system mm -hmm. are now extremely conversant and have a seat at the table uh, as well so I think it's much more of a combined marketplace effort than it was, hey, we just represent one side of the equation. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny going back. It, it, I just As you're talking, I'm realizing I have not heard the term remnant inventory in several years. <laughs> and I remember when I came into this industry, when I came to IEB in, in 2007, I think you were on the board at the time. I remember being kind of amazed because having come from Booz Allen, where we had been building um, uh, you know, in effect, online marketplaces uh, in other industries, uh, say for, for steel and rubber procurement in the auto industry. Um, we're doing it in banking. The idea that this was somehow adversarial rather than a collaborative approach to building a more efficient marketplace struck me as, as very unusual. Um, as did you know the whole notion of remnant because I remember even at a board meeting when a, a argument breaking an IAB board meeting where the argument breaking out between um, one of the early uh, ad networks and one of the publishers were publishers pointing at the ad network guy across the table saying you know uh, uh, you're commoditizing my uh, you're commoditizing my inventory and the network guy is going. I'm not selling anything that you're not giving me. <laughs> so it, it, we have evolved a long way from that, but it's taken a while, I think you're right, to, uh, to bring uh, the, the buyers, especially the ultimate buyers, the brands themselves um, into the mix uh, and uh, with, a, with a high degree of understanding. I mean, why do you think that is? Why has it taken them so long to uh, uh, get into the mix directly? Well, we sure didn't make it any easier for the marketers, right? And when I say we, the whole ad tech ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, acronyms, uh, so many players, so many layers, uh, black boxes, uh, lack of transparency. And in a certain way, if it was just started off as remnant, it's easy to wash your hands on that stuff and just say, let it happen. Um, as it moved up the value chain, in terms of the type of advertisers that were participating and the type of ad inventory that was being uh, put into the marketplace, 
it became uh, core essential. Now, of course, you get to the uh, existential question about the agency's media model. And, right. Um, how, if, if all this is going out in, in this world, um, uh, how am I going to get paid? And, and what's my uh, value proposition to the marketer of combining my media spend and going to market um, as a force, a, a buying force, as opposed to buying on 150 different platforms with not enough on each platform to make a big difference in terms of swaying rates or uh, uh, availability or preference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's actually let let's work our way back to that because I'm interested. But but I want to I want to get to the nut of the matter, which is you know you've now just closed a very important uh, uh, merger with Teleria, um, a video specialist, um, connected television, uh, and the evolution of CTV is uh, one of the primary uh, objectives of this combination of Rubicon, Rubicon and Teleria. How do you look at, or, or, or what's your, your, your best vision of what the evolution of this programmatic CTV marketplace is going to look like? I mean, we have about $100 billion in uh, 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 linear television spend. It's been declining you know, gradually over the past couple of years. Um, Connected is about a $9 billion marketplace. How do you look at this evolving and what's your role in it? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I don't know if our crystal ball is any clearer than anyone else's, but, um, you know, if you start with the consumer behavior, right, um, the reason why, you know, ad technology um, sprung up, it was because the media dollars, uh, whether it was magazines, whether it was cable, uh, whether it was newspapers, local television, whatever the case might be, it was uh, held by a small number of players, relatively small number of players. And then when the internet came on, there was an explosion in choices for the consumer and the consumer went in a thousand different directions and then advertisers had to follow but it was impossible to do the same model, right? You, you, everyone, every publisher having to hire a direct sales team, every publisher having to call directly on agencies. They didn't have the bandwidth. The P&L wasn't there for the publisher to do it. So in stepped a way to automate this, how to bring uh, 10,000 publishers together onto a marketplace so that they could tap into this ad spend that the marketers wanted to reach the consumer eyeballs. And you just fast forward to the cord cutting and CTV in the consumer behavior, and boy, have we seen that uh, during this, you know, COVID-induced uh, recession. Uh, but the amount of traffic that we're seeing on our platform, and the amount of CTV watching, uh, particularly among the ad-supported um, yeah. properties, because if you recall, that was still going into this recession. That was a debate. No, it's never going to be ad-supported. Netflix is the model. Um, no, Hulu's the model. Uh, and I think what you're finding is. <laughs> There's an awful lot out there and there's gonna be many different models, but yep. the simple fact is the consumer only has so much to spend for subscriptions and therefore they're fine with ad supported uh, approaches as well. So we're seeing a huge whoosh in that. And that, you know, you also read the, you know, the, the, the decline of the upfront marketplace, but now the absolute, you know, um, a freezing of the upfront marketplace. So now you're talking much more of a spot market going forward 
for this year. And perhaps those are lasting changes and those are things that benefit programmatic as well. And, and lastly, I don't think there's any reason why video is going to behave any different than media formats that came before, you know, mobile or desktop or whatever the case might be, where, you know, the vast majority of it will become digital. And of that, the vast majority will be programmatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, I mean, we're uh, doing quite a lot of work at IEB right now on the um, what the eventual redesign of the transactional marketplace is going to look like. Um, it has struck us, this is, I think, self-evident that the, um, the freezing, the elimination of the upfronts this year, um, the new fronts were never an upfront marketplace. They were more of an introduction of uh, programming and capabilities to the market. But it seems to be that this will be the, the point, the transition point from uh, you know, an upfront that accounted for the uh, significant majority of uh, network sales to a full year calendar of, like you're saying, a, a full year spot marketplace that, uh, that closes by the second. You know, so every second is, is, a, is a pricing and a closing. Uh, the interesting part of that is how do companies uh, uh, on both sides, the buyers and the sellers, um, as well as the intermediaries, you know, adapt to what is really a foundational change in the culture of transactions. Any thoughts? No, yeah, but I, I mean, uh, the, to me, I think the biggest change is um, how the programming is being uh, uh, brought to the consumer, brought to market. And the fact that there's not this um, cadence of um, new shows all appearing at once uh, and that the consumers used to uh, these different windows now, and some are binge, bingeable, some aren't. But um, that, in and of itself, upends you know the concept of this upfront, where we're placing dollars for a slate of shows that may or may not be successful, that uh, cost a lot in production, may not right. even go from production to to live. So I, I think there's just fundamental changes that are accelerated by the, the backdrop we, we, we find ourselves in. Yeah, I, I was really struck. I, I think it was uh, yesterday, uh, Ben Smith, the new media columnist for, uh, for the New York Times, uh, did a column on Bob Iger's right. basically reappearance in the center of Disney, um, even though he stepped down as, as CEO. Um, and while well, the, 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 the guts of the column were really about the, uh, the theme park business and the cruise ship business and bad moment for those. Buried in the middle was Iger talking about how um, big um, expensive upfront sales presentations don't really make sense anymore. Uh, spending on pilots that might never be produced uh, doesn't make sense anymore. So you can see these things now rising to the very top of the largest uh, producers. I was also struck, I, I don't know how, uh, what, what your viewing habits uh, uh, are, but I recently in the, uh, the, the, the silence of my media room, which is behind me, um, you know, uh, uh, started uh, exploring Pluto TV. And it's, it, it's fascinating to me because it's a, you know, it's basically, it's like my, my full on MSO. It looks exactly like my Spectrum Reach cable but it's all Viacom properties. It's all free. It's all ad supported. 
uh, it's it navigates exactly the way my uh, my my cable works. And there's a lot, there's a ton of stuff there, all free, all ad supported. And so I had the same reaction to people talking about it's Netflix's universe as, as you've had. No, this game isn't over. Yeah, and I, I what will be even more fascinating is a case of obviously sports will come back online uh, downstream, but what's that gonna look like? Have consumers, because of experience like you just had with Pluto or the various other uh, AVOD services, are they kind of like, yeah, boy, was I paying an awful lot for sports and I only watched some of it. Um, do you see this uh, super acceleration in cord cutting because live sports was the glue that kind of held uh, uh, some of the packages together? Is that is that all uh, atomized and uh, you're going to see the folks that sampled the Pluto, uh, the folks that sampled some of the other services sticking with that because they would have never found it if it wasn't for this uh, uh backdrop that we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah, I'm having the same thoughts, it, 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 particularly about sports, because um, I still haven't seen the full-on analysis, although our friend uh, uh, Jeff Cole from uh, USC Annenberg Center has talked uh, a fair amount about this, uh, that sports rights fees have continued to skyrocket uh, professional sports, even as, this will sound familiar, given the history of, of, of television generally, even as the audience has aged um, and, and even as the audience has aged and started shrinking. Yeah. And so you kind of look at and say, isn't there a point where the audience can no longer support these extraordinary rights fees? Um, is this moment going to be hastening that well, if that's the case, what happens to these professional sports leagues that have really been heavily dependent on uh, you know, very uh, well-heeled media companies paying tons of billions of dollars for the rights? And I'm without question not smart enough to be able to figure that one out, but that's something I would keep my eye on. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah. So if you look at the landscape, let, let, let's continue to look at this, uh, this connected television landscape. I'm intrigued because... Um, uh, NBC just announced some pretty significant uh, deals for the uh, advertising deals for the launch of Peacock. Um, and so they've gone in a different direction than Disney did, at least with the introduction of Disney Plus, to basically go all in on AVOD as opposed to SVOD. Uh, you know, you've got Viacom, which seems to be uh, making great strides creatively, at least, and pro programming wise with uh, Pluto. You've got Amazon, which launched IMDb as an ad supported, as an AVOD network. Um, there's, I'm not sure if there are rumors or just speculation that Netflix will be doing, uh, doing something here. Um, how would you look, if you were gonna guess two years from now, three years from now, what would you say the ad supported video landscape will look like relative to the SVOD? Um, do you think we're going to hit um, uh, kind of price sensitive consumer price sensitivity on SVOD soon, or is there still a ways to go? And what's the what's the, what's that what what's that look like? I mean, I think you have to start from uh, some of the things that we do know, and we know that uh, 
consumers have cut the cord because of pricing, right? Uh, so one must assume that um, there isn't a package that someone could assemble a la carte that would cost the consumer more than the consumer would be compelled to do. So let's just assume that uh, that was the, the zenith of consumer spend on subscription uh, was the, the height of the cable package. Uh, and so if you look at how many packages that are out there that could come close to equaling that cost, uh, you, 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 you kind of stall at like four or five. Yeah. Um, and so as you just mentioned, I think it was in the journal today, they had a list of all the uh, uh, streaming services you should be watching and services, not shows. And, this, and there probably was 45 of them on just one sheet. Um, so who are the, <laughs> so what are the other 40 going to do that aren't uh, being paid directly by the consumer? And I think you're going to find that, you know, Hulu has been enormously successful yeah. with the hybrid model, right? 70% um, of their viewership is the ad supported uh, piece of it. And they think it's a fair value exchange. And I think Hulu has been very artful, mostly in terms of the load uh, the execution, the creativity, and um, th that is definitely the future. Um, yeah. uh, that that trade-off seems to be the fair one, and the price point seems to work. And I think that's what you're going to see. So my answer would be, the vast majority, very few, um, can survive without it. And uh, even at Disney Plus, if you look at Disney, that's unbelievable but yeah they also have hulu though which is the uh, hybrid right. so it's not like they have religion where they'll never do it they just have another service that does it that way yeah no it, it, that was that was a little short of genius to be able to bring all that together and to be able to kind of flank all sides of the proposition i also think that artful is a really great word uh to apply to what hulu did over the years it's just a series of not just uh that's simply visionary CEOs beginning with Jason Kylar, but, but artful and crafty CEOs from Jason to Mike Hopkins, yeah. Randy Freer, figuring out what those models should be and actually being reasonably experimental with, um, and also quick to make, de uh, quick to make decisions right. on it. Tell me, Michael, in, in the, the, the new construct, in the newly merged company, who would you say your, your, your core customers are? Who are you really looking to uh, spend the most time with and to bring kind of into the fold more? Is, is it going to be the, uh, the, the, the large multi-platform uh, publishing companies? Is it going to be the giant brands that need to apply these? Is it going to be long tail brands working with long tail uh, uh, publishers? How do, you, how do you see your customer base evolving over the next couple of years? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a great, a great question. We obviously, when you have a merger, you spend a lot of time uh, dancing, getting to know each other. Um, and then you, you come to that epiphany moment where you're like, okay, this is going to work. It makes sense for our shareholders. Um, and during that journey, there was this kind of, I, I went into it thinking, well, they have this, this, this gem CTV and some clients that we Rubicon would never get because we don't have that product. They're on the other hand thinking, boy, we've got this non-CTV video that's becoming increasingly header bitter and you know capex intensive, and boy, they're good at that. And man, if you look at companies that are super successful in this space, 
some of them start off as real specialists, but the real winners, the outside winners are the folks that do it all for their, their clients. Mm -hmm. So for our publishing partners, we're there for them for, if it can be bought or sold programmatically, we're going to be able to handle it for them, uh, which I think gives us a big separation from the rest of the generalist pack. Right. Um, but I think when we look at the real excitement and that is as big multinational uh, entertainment uh, content companies that traffic in all sorts of uh, types of uh, ads, whether it's display, whether it's video on mobile, whether it's video on the big screen and trying to figure out a package for them, software services for them that really makes it a choice that they never had in the marketplace before. You almost always had to go with, you know, well, Google or a Comcast because listen, you know, they're huge balance sheets and uh, uh, established companies and good companies, uh, 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 but companies that were inherently conflicted because they own their own media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a sales pitch, but so it, this independent alternative has not really existed mm -hmm. for publishers. It does on the buy side. You know, if you look at right. uh, the trade desk, independent, generalist, uh, focus on CTV, but uh, uh, an alternative to, uh, uh, if you're a marketer, an alternative to uh, uh, working with another DSP that may have a competitive nature to it. Um, publishers haven't had that. So this is what we're trying to build here. And that's the vision that we have. And I think the sweet spot of the publisher that that will appeal to are the largest, most sophisticated brands in in the world. Now, is your who, who's your competition in this? Is is is, is it Xander? Is it Google? Is it um, how, how do you position yourself in um, in the competitive side? Well, sure. I mean, everyone, uh, it, it, those guys and others will certainly be uh, competitive. But um, in the case of Xander, where they own media, in the case of Google, where they own media, um, the big point we're making is, Mr. Publisher. We'll never favor our media over your media. We don't make media. Uh, we're just this independent tech company that connects you to your buyers unfettered and transparent, low-cost pipes. And we're experts and we can help you. And you know we're passionate and we'll custom build stuff for you. So um, I think the biggest difference, sure, Xander's competitors, Google, definitely a competitor, free will a competitor, but we're, not, we're the guy that isn't owned by a media company. We're the mm -hmm. guy that isn't in media. And we're, the, we're that alternative if you uh, feel passionate that you don't want to be giving your com competition money uh, to have them make ads for you. Hmm. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we got on uh, line here uh, about the question of doing a, a merger integration from the, uh, the privacy of your bedroom. Uh, what, but in fact, what has it been like? Uh, I, you're joining two companies. Uh, two complex companies in many different offices, and now you can't get out to visit them. Uh, you can't gather people in a room. Uh, has that proved uh, just terrifying, or is it working out? Well, it's working out to a degree far better than I expected. Uh, obviously, you have a plan going into a merger, and that was that uh, day and date with the close of the deal. So there's this always weird area where you announce the deal, but you haven't regulatory closed it, or you haven't you know, gotten your proxies back from your shareholders. 
So that period of time is always the most awkward because there are things you can and can't do. They're, they're very prescriptive from the DOJ and the SEC. And so you really have to operate as two separate companies, no joint presentations, no joint pricing, anything like that. But the day you close the deal, you hit the ground running and we had this artful plan of going out as NUCO as this one company, new brand, new name, and um, the uh, uh, pandemic hits. And uh, we made a conscious decision that first and foremost, the only thing that really mattered to us was the safety and health uh, of our employees, period. So that meant shutting the offices as early as we possibly could. And then the logic says that um, we're going to have to uh, go to market a little bit slower than we would have liked to. Um, so let's start off the quarter because it closed April 1st as two separate companies under under you know one company. But keep doing what you're doing. Uh, Rubicon, do what you do. Tulare, do what you do. And little by little on the, the buyer side team, where are the areas where we can get folks together? We've been doing webinars. Um, you know, And as we talked, I'm just blown away by how functional and uh, productive I feel our company has been during this period of time. Uh, as, as you pointed out, there's just no downtime. Like we're we're at it all day long, and I think we're. Uh, in, and I was talking to Joe, who runs, you know, our global uh, supply side, and um, they haven't missed a beat with clients, or uh, you know, interacting with clients and doing webinars with clients. So. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of lessons that uh, thankfully I won't ever work through another pandemic, but I, I think there are some real lessons to take from this uh, and um, apply them. But uh, uh, a long-winded way to say, very pleased with the way it's been going today. Yeah, I, I think we're all going to learn uh, uh, how much travel is, in business travel is in fact unnecessary. We're also going to learn how to appreciate it for what it can do but not be so wanton and just flying everywhere all the time. Just these face-to-faces, this spot on, as we were talking beforehand, it's just, it's kind of funny uh, how in these kind of Zoom environments, there's less multitasking going on than there are in live meetings because you, you can't escape it. I'm looking you straight in the eye. I can't be looking down here with my phone going like this. So I just got the, uh, the high sign that our time is off. So Michael Barrett, CEO of Rubicon Project, fresh off the closing of your merger with Telaria. Thank you for being with us on IAB there. Randall, thank you so much. Brad, thanks will, for your time. Yep, see you, see you very soon live and really in, in the flesh soon. <laughs> uh, I have to say uh, 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 on tomorrow's IAB there, we're excited to welcome back the IAB's Senior Vice President of Research and Measurement, Sue Hogan, who's going to discuss the next phase of our coronavirus ad revenue impact. And this is her report, her survey, of the sell side of the industry. It's very impactful work. Uh, it's been the most mentioned uh, research on, uh, on ad spend uh, since we released the first part of this study about two weeks ago. So be sure to tune in on tomorrow's IAB There. IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ounce, John Ward, Twafika Mohanudin, and Haley Bloom. I'm Randall Rothenberg. Thank you for watching. You can always tune in at 2 p.m. five days a week on iab.com slash there. Thank you. See you all tomorrow.